Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. I hope you are um, awake and, you know, the sleep is rubbed out of the corner of your eyes because we got a lot of ground to cover today. This is Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge. You're listening to the Faith Radio Network. It is the 11th of May, 2022. Where in the word are you today? Where in the word are you today? I am in John chapter 17. We're going to read it a little bit later in the program. Um, But the answer to the question of where in the word we are is far more important than the conversations that um, we might find ourselves in related to the world and where in the world we are. It matters most where we are in the word. Are you in Christ today? And if you don't know what I mean when I ask that question, um, let me invite you to consider getting that business done before you get into any other business today. Because where we stand in relationship to God, uh, in relationship to Jesus Christ, is the most important conversation anybody could possibly have uh, today. And so where in the word are you? Are you in Christ? Do you know what I mean when I ask that question? Um, those who are in Christ know and understand what that means. And uh, if you if you don't know, and you know a Christian, or you know a, a church near you, That's actually why the church exists, to introduce people to Jesus and to answer their questions about him and to introduce people to him and to then walk with individuals in an experience that we as Christians call discipleship. So I encourage you to um, follow up with me personally if you want to. You can can text me at 877-933-2484. You can email me, carmen, at myfaithradio.com if you want to know more about Jesus and what it means to be in Christ, uh, nothing would thrill my heart nor make me happier than to have that conversation with you. What we do here on Mornings with Carmen is we apply the mind of Christ to the headline news of the day. And so uh, that means we we kind of need to know what the issues are uh, in the world this morning. What did we wake up to? Ukraine uh, has stopped the flow of Russian natural gas to Europe through one of its key hubs in eastern Ukraine um, because the region um, beyond where they turned off the gas, the region is now controlled by Russian troops. And so Ukraine has said, well, no gas is going to flow through there um, while that is the case. And so, um, you know, the good news is that Europe has been preparing for a disruption of the flow of Russian natural gas. So hopefully um, plans to supply for the needs of the people of Europe in terms of energy uh, are going to be met from others, including the United States. A journalist from Al Jazeera network was shot and killed during an exchange of gunfire between Israeli forces and Palestinians in the West Bank. Still unclear um, who actually shot this individual, but there's going to be, I'm sure, more coverage of this in the uh, in the ensuing uh, hours and days. So that is a headline to watch for as well. Sri Lanka is in uh, open crisis. The prime minister resigned 
There's open conflict in the streets between protesters and pro-government forces, and the government has now ordered troops to, quote, shoot violent protesters on site. The challenge is, at this point, the protesters, um, uh, for the most part, are not violent. And so it's nonviolent protesters that are in uh, in the crosshairs of pro-government forces. It's a particularly challenging situation and one um, for which I would encourage you to be praying today. Senate Majority Leader uh, Chuck Schumer is saying that the Democrats are going to vote on abortion legislation. He describes it as very simple. It's not simple. It would not only enshrine Roe v. Wade into law, um, but it would expand access to abortion in the United States, allowing for abortion for any reason or no reason at all up to the very point of birth. Um, So do not be uh, fooled uh, that this is simply establishing in in the rule of law Roe v. Wade uh, or abortion in the United States across all 50 states uh, and its provinces. But this would be um, an expansion of that, uh, an extreme expansion in my view. Uh, And so don't be fooled uh, by that when you read uh, that the majority leader of the Senate said that it's just, you know, just a simple um, placing into or codifying into law what has been true in the United States since the 1973 decision of the Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade. The FDA is working uh, around the clock uh, to address the national baby formula shortage, which left apparently some states with just half of their normal supply. Uh, 75% of babies needing formula. Um, Why is that? People must not be breastfeeding very much anymore. If 75% of babies born in America need formula, that means there's not a lot of people breastfeeding. That might be a, a whole nother conversation to be had there. Um, there's plenty of uh, food for babies. Yeah, I mean, it actually comes naturally. God provides it. So, um, I mean, I know that's not true in every case, but that might be an interesting conversation to be had in the uh, shortage of baby formula conversation. All right, let's leave it right there. we got a lot of other things we could be talking about today. Um, the good news is here in the first segment, it's just you and me. We have the opportunity to talk about some things together. I'm going to talk about... Um, closeness communication bias. Yeah, it's actually the scientific reason that we don't hear our mothers when we're teenagers. Yeah, you literally can't hear them. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Cold pizza for breakfast. Warm cook to wash it down. If you are a mother of teenagers, um, listen up. Um, and and how many times have mothers of teenagers or yeah, mothers of young adults been like, can you even hear me? Are you listening to me? Okay. You know, come to find out um, they can't hear us. Yeah, they actually like can't hear us. So it's called closeness communication bias. It is the scientifically observed phenomenon. Um, So you might think of like familiarity breeds contempt or familiarity breeds complacency. We literally don't hear the voices of the people closest to us over time. Uh, Okay, the adolescent brain. So this is based on uh, research just out this week. Um, Research on the adolescent brain suggests that... um, We have a reaction to certain voices that naturally shifts over time, making our mother's voice 
feel less valuable. Now, I know that in the week of Mother's Day, this is terrible, terrible news to be covering. But they scanned the brains of children, um, and those who are 12 years old and under show this explosive neural response to their mother's voice. So you hear your mom's voice and your brain explodes. Like you're like, oh, I got to pay attention to that voice. That's the most critical voice in the world. Um, that's the voice of of comfort and counsel and safety. And I, I got to listen to her. I got to I, I got to do exactly what she says. I mean, like all keyed up to mom's voice until the age of 12. And actually the brain um, triggers reward centers and um, these emotional processing centers in the brain up to the age of 12. And then sometime around the kid's 13th birthday, the brain actually changes. And the mother's voice no longer generates that same neurological reaction. No longer does the brain release serotonin um, when the mother's voice is heard. Instead, a teenager's brain, regardless of their sex, so this is true of girls and boys, is becomes more responsive to all other voices, all other voices, except for the voice of mom. Now think about that. The changes are so apparent, as I'm reading here from the research, uh, the change is so apparent that researchers were able to guess a child's age simply based on how their brain responded to the sound of their mother's voice. So you may say to yourself, um, you know, we aren't naturally good listeners. Actually, it's worse than that. We um, we start making assumptions that we already know what the people we live with and, and know best and who love us, you know, cl- most closely. We make assumptions when it comes to, to those people. Um, and the familiarity with them results in assuming that we know what they're thinking. We assume that we know what they're saying without actually listening to them. So you can see how that leads to all kinds of misunderstanding and frustration and relational breakdown Um, So let's not overestimate our ability to read or understand those closest to us. Let's actually listen to them so that we don't miss anything. I'm thinking here that we need to develop good active listening skills, which include um, something researchers call negative capability. So here you go. Something to cultivate today is your negative capability when it comes to listening. So instead of rushing, you know, and saying, oh, yeah, I already know that. I already know that. I already know that. Oh, I, you know, I know that. Um, instead, actually look for new information. Don't just, don't just seek to take stuff and throw it into an old mental bucket. Uh, people with negative capability have this like patient curiosity to tease out information through the asking of insightful questions, you know, things as simple as tell me more, or let me be sure that I understand you. Tell me more. When you think about listening to God, when you think about listening to the voice of God, when you think about being aware of God who is always listening to us, how does it influence this conversation about familiarity? Do you already think you know everything that God has said or what God is thinking? Are you curious and patient in terms of listening to him? I mean, we want God to be curious and patient when he's listening to us, right? Are we curious and patient when we're seeking the Lord and when we're listening to him? Let's not, um, let's not fall into this, uh, this developmental closeness communication bias. Let's not assume we already know what God has said about something. Let's actually listen to him today 
And let's do the same for our moms. All right, let's take a brief break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the American dream. It is still very much real. It is still very much active. I'm also going to ask us the provocative question whether we're American dreamers or whether or not we're kingdom dreamers. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Daydream believer. Yeah. Let's talk about the American dream. Um, The American dream is not dead. I mean, I know people have said it's dead, but I got a story here about Erica's dad. Erica's dad is uh, Rudra Pandey. He was born in a village in Nepal in a farming family. And he came to the United States. Um, He paid his way. through a Ph.D. program in Boston by working overnight shifts as a parking attendant at a condo complex called the Commercial Wharf. And um, he worked every night. So he went to school all day. He worked all night uh, and paid for his Ph.D. out of his own pocket. And when school ended and he started looking for a job in his field, he just put a copy of his resume on the hood of every car that he parked at Commercial Wharf. And it took um, it took a while, but somebody finally actually read his resume and gave him an opportunity at what was then called Fleet Bank, now part of Bank of America. Since then, uh, he has scaled and sold two software companies. Um, and according to uh, his daughter, Erica, he has given his children every opportunity under the sun. He credits his success to this, the American dream. Um, if you were to have a conversation with people who want to come to the United States of of America, this is, this is their hope. This is the story they long for. People across borders and oceans still view the United States as the place, uh, that they want to go to build a better life for their children. When uh, surveyed by Gallup, 70% of U.S. adults, this holds true for race, gender, political party, income, 70% of American adults say that the American dream is still achievable. But that means 30% don't, which I think is significant as well. Um, Three American dream stats that we can chew on today. Um, One we'll call founder frenzy. 44% of Fortune 500 companies uh, have at least one founder who is a first-generation immigrant or second-generation Uh, generation immigrant. So either an immigrant themselves or the first generation child of an immigrant. Now, that's pretty extraordinary. Um, There's also statistics related to upward mobility. Even the children of immigrants who fall into the poorest quarter of the U.S. population end up in the middle class by uh, midlife. That's extraordinary as well. There's a lot of upward mobility. Um, for for those who uh, who come here from other parts of the world, um, I'm not saying that there's upward mobility for everyone. Like I, this is part of the challenge, right? There's a stagnation of poverty. There's there's cyclical poverty, and I understand that as well. And it feels like a trap to so many people. But there is still upward mobility. Um, Self made wealth would be the other part of this conversation. I hate that term, self made wealth, but that's the language that. Um, the statisticians use here. 
80% of America's millionaires, 80% of Americans, of America's millionaires are first generation Americans. That's amazing. That's amazing. The bottom line, the United States remains the leading destination for immigrants who have big dreams. Um, and so when we talk about immigration and we talk about um, welcoming the stranger, I think those are interesting parts of this conversation to have as well. But I want to have a bigger conversation or a different conversation. Um, what do you dream? Not so much like what do you dream, you know, in the overnight variety of your dreams, although that's a great topic for conversation as well. I mean, God's word demonstrates the stories of Daniel and Joseph and others. God certainly can use visions and dreams to communicate with us. We hear about God coming to people in visions and dreams in the Middle East um, and, you know, turning the hearts of Muslims to Christ. So I'm not talking about those kinds of dreams right now. I'm asking um, whether or not your dreams for your future are based in a nation state like the United States of America or based in the kingdom of God. Do you dream of and work hard for the kingdom realities on earth as they are in heaven or are you actually really more invested? Time, money, talent, conversation, hopes, dreams. Are you really more invested in the American dream than you are in the kingdom dream? And you may say, well, there's no difference, right? I mean, you know, there's no difference. Uh, there's a big difference. And I think it is about sort of where our heart is tethered, what we're working to make more of or to make much of. There's a difference between living for the making of a living or the making of, uh, of a wealth or the making of generational significance here in this world and the making of a kingdom life. And, and, and certainly part of the difference is who and what we're making much of. Do we dream of making more money or much money, building wealth in the here and now for the me and mine? Or are we really dreaming of making more of Jesus and his kingdom and the kingdom realities? And this is where a conversation about John 17 comes in. Jesus has dreams and he communicates uh, his kingdom dreams in John chapter 17. And he talks about the glory of God and he talks about manifesting God among others. Um, and he talks about his heart for those of us who are his followers. Um, and he talks about having given us the word of God. Picking up at verse 14, Jesus is speaking here directly to the Father. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. That's Jesus' dream for kingdom followers here on earth, that we would be sanctified, that we would be sanctified in the truth of the word of God, that we would be agents of God's grace in, uh, in the generation in which we are set to live, in this place, in this time. There's nothing wrong with the American dream unless it has usurped in your heart, in your time, talent, energy, and conversation, the kingdom dream of Jesus for which we now live. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. We'll be right back. So with all the conversations across the country uh, on the topic of abortion, 
Um, I am noting, and I'm wondering if you are noticing, a rise in the willingness of total strangers to engage in pretty substantive conversation about life issues. Are you, are you noticing that? I mean, people are willing to talk about um, abortion and birth control, for that matter. Um, so since the leak of the draft opinion of the Supreme Court in the Dobbs case, which indicates that the Supreme Court is going to overturn the 1973 ruling in Roe v. Wade, you know, we're, we've seen protests, we've seen all kinds of, uh, well, we've seen all kinds of public political discourse. But I'm, what I'm wondering here is, have you noticed a rise in the willingness of total strangers to engage in substantive conversations about life issues? And are you taking advantage of that? Are you leaning into that? Um, Abigail um, uh, Favali uh, posted on Twitter last night, oh, hey, I just had a conversation with a TSA agent um, asking me for my views on abortion and birth control because I shared with him that I was tired because I just did a three-hour podcast about Catholic feminism. Now, first of all, I mean, you might unpack so many parts of that. But what Abigail is pointing to is the reality that everyone right now is willing to talk about things that we have not been willing to publicly talk about in a very long time. Um, Conversations are right out there. And so um, we got to be prepared for those conversations. And so preparing us uh, for the conversations of the day, one of my favorite conversation partners, Jim Dennison from the Dennison Forum, you know him as the author of The Coming Tsunami. Um, We're going to talk next about the Supreme Court leak. Uh, We're going to talk about abortion. We're going to talk about what it means. All of that up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Again, this morning, as he often does, we've got Jim Dennison from the Dennison Forum. You should be following what he's not only writing but talking about at DennisonForum.org. Jim, welcome back. Carmen, so glad to be on with you again today. Thanks every time for the privilege. Well, absolutely. There is a ton of really great content right now at Dennison Forum. I mean, I'm, I was listening to the podcast that you recently did with um, with David French. I'm reading what you're writing in terms of the pro-choice abortion advocates and, and what's happening across the country. I'm wondering if we could just spend a little time today talking about um, the status of things across the country in relationship to conversations swirling around abortion. Absolutely. And you're right. This is a level of division and divisiveness that we're seeing right now that is truly frightening. It really is. Over the last weekend, we saw demonstrations outside churches. Some churches were actually attacked and vandalized. Some pro-life organizations, it was one in Wisconsin, that were lit on fire. Others that were sprayed with graffiti. Supreme Court justices saw demonstrations outside their homes last weekend. More are scheduled for Wednesday. So we're seeing a devolution of these culture wars on a level that really is becoming increasingly increasingly frightening, and uh, the polarization of what we're seeing right now is really, I guess, on some level to be expected, but it's really discouraging to see it happening in practice. So you lift up this question, and so I'm just going to ask it to you. How should Christians fight the culture war? 
Yeah, that's exactly in my heart, really, what I think we're thinking about right now on a level of enormous significance. We're called to speak the truth in love. So that means we're to obviously stand for truth. We're obviously to, as First Peter 3 says, make a case for the reason that we hold in faith and uh, stand clearly and courageously for biblical truth, as the apostles did. But we can't sacrifice biblical character for the sake of biblical truth. We still need to manifest the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That means I have to start every day by being filled with the Spirit, submitted to the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18, so that I then can speak the truth in love, so that I don't win battles and lose souls, so that I don't stand for Christ in a way that doesn't honor Christ. So we have to balance these two things, where we stand for biblical morality, and we do so boldly and courageously, but we do so with biblical compassion and character. The other side is not the enemy. My friend John Stone Street mm. says ideas have consequences, bad ideas have victims. The Bible says the natural man doesn't understand the things of God. So it's my job, if I'm the only flashlight in a dark room, it's my job to keep the light lit, knowing that the darker the room, the more powerful the light. So those are such good reminders. And, uh, you know, when we're talking about speaking the truth, um, we're talking about doing so in love. Um, you know, listeners here often hear me say, you know, we want to represent Christ. We don't want to just represent him. We want to represent him and we want to do so in ways that honor him. I mean, there are ways to speak the truth that are contrary, um, you know, to the one who is the way and the truth and the life. And that's what I hear you saying. That's exactly right. I love that statement, to represent Christ in everything that we do. Understanding that so much of the time we're having conversations with people that don't know the gospel. They genuinely do not know what Jesus' death on the cross purchased for them. I was that way growing up in Houston, Texas. At the age of 15, I had no idea what the gospel was before I was invited by some friends to ride the bus to church. So let's reframe every cultural war conversation as an opportunity to get to the war that matters most, and that's the war for your eternal soul. Let's speak biblical truth to cultural issues, but let's do so as a means to the end of ultimately leading you to Jesus. It's Acts 17, where Paul started with Greek philosophy and led to Christ. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, maybe the greatest preacher Baptist I've ever known, was asked the secret to preaching. He said, take a text and make a beeline for Jesus. So ultimately, mm. that's the issue that matters most, is leading people to Christ in a way that honors Christ. And that's the opportunity you and I have in the conversations of the day. Yeah, that speaking the truth in love verse, for those of you who are thinking about, you know, you're like, gosh, I know, I know I've heard that before. It's in Ephesians chapter four. And I commend to you, you know, the reading of the entire chapter. I think there are times, Jim, when we take a verse that we love and we excise part of it um, and we lift it up and we forget, you know, that that verse has a context. I'm thinking um, further down in that chapter when, um, you know, we get the instruction to be angry, but do not sin, don't let the sun go down on our anger, giving no opportunity to the devil. And that's also then where this conversation about let no corrupting talk come out of your minds, but only that which is good for building up as fits the occasion. I, we are not good at giving grace. Like that, I think, is part of when we talk about how Christians fight, I, I'm not sure that we are good at giving grace to those who with whom we disagree. 
I'm afraid you're right. I know that's true in my heart anyway. It's easy to see this as a zero-sum game. If I'm wrong, you're right. If you're wrong, I'm right. And so all these issues are a kind of a take-no-prisoners kind of a sort of an attack. And we think we're honoring the Lord in so doing. Quite often we have a motive that's right. I really do want to speak for truth. If it's the Roe v. Wade issue, we're talking about life itself. How could there be a larger issue here, right? And so at the end of the day, whether it's the Equality Act and Christian liberty and uh, or whatever the tolerance issue might be inside that, we really do want to be coming forward and understanding the gravity of the moment, being men of Issachar that understood the times to know what Israel ought to do. These are deep issues. These are issues of enormous significance. But as we do this, we must always do this in the spirit of Christ in a way that honors him and pays forward the grace that we have received. I love the old idea that Christians are beggars helping beggars find bread. When I was pastoring in Atlanta, we discovered after a number of homeless people started coming to our church regularly that they had marked our church, that they had a way of putting something outside. We never did quite figure out how they did it, but they had a way of marking the building so that other homeless people knew that they could get help here. I love that idea. I want to be marked in such a way that when people see me, they see Christ in me. They know that they're going to receive from me the grace that I have received so that I'm paying forward the grace of Christ. So we're talking with Dr. Jim Dennison from the Dennison Forum. We're talking, you know, around um, all of the subject matter related to the conversations that we're having as Christians in the culture today, particularly in view of uh, the leaked opinion, a draft opinion of the Supreme Court surrounding the Dobbs case out of Mississippi. We certainly expect the Supreme Court to issue its ruling in that case in June, but we have this leaked document that has then produced all kinds of protests across the country, protests at the homes of Supreme Court justices, action against pro-life uh, pregnancy centers and um, and churches as well. So we're talking about civility and incivility. We're talking about the culture today. We're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. I'm going to ask Jim to reflect on some of what he's heard from others across the across the culture. He just had a conversation on a podcast with David French. I'm going to ask about that and something that he read by Ross Douthat in the New York Times. All of that up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing our conversation now with Jim Dennison from the Dennison Forum. You can find him at dennisonforum.org. So, Jim, you have recently had a conversation with David French about this topic and across a range of topics related to it. Um, I know it is on your Denison Forum podcast right now. Wondering if um, you could share some insights from that conversation. Absolutely. Terrific opportunity to be with David, as you would know. He's just as gracious in person as you would want him to be, as you'd expect him to be. Very kind to spend an hour with us. And we got to really talk about a lot of the issues we're discussing right now. So there was one in particular that I really wanted to drill down in, if we could. So I said to him, look, I understand. I've read your book, Divided We Fall. I read your content very regularly. I understand that you're an advocate for civility. You're an advocate for Christian character as well as Christian positions. That's the sort of thing we're talking about right now. But I asked him, are we in a day when we can no longer do both. Are we in a day where the issues are so divisive, where the side that's been opposed to him, actually the article in French and First Things that argued against David Frenchism that came out a couple years ago, this kind of idea that we need a Romans 13 leader, and if they're not a Sermon on the Mount character at the end of the day, that's okay. 
We need the Romans 13 most. We're not electing a Sunday school teacher here. I'm not voting on a pastor. I need somebody to defend the country and defend religious liberty and move forward on these critical issues. And if character doesn't go with that, well, I'm willing to make that decision. And sometimes you have to fight fire with fire. That was what I was asking him. Are we in that place now? I didn't want to be in that place. That's not my position. But how would he respond to that? He said, categorically, biblically, we can't make that choice, which we all understand to be true. The apostles didn't do that. We don't see that across the uh, really Christian history, Christians standing up in a way that, that would make that choice, where we can not where we can do one without the other. And I said, well, there's an example of somebody effectively doing both. And he took us to the 64 Civil Rights Movement. He reminded us of the principles of nonviolence. He reminded us of those Christian leaders in the 60s who advocated for what is arguably the most transformative civil rights movement in American history and did so in a way that upheld Christian character at the same time they were arguing for Christian values, reminding us that it can be done. It's been done in American history. So we don't have to jettison character for the sake of our positions. And I thought that part of the conversation was especially interesting. Mm, That's really helpful. Um, He said something in there that made me think of something else. Um, He talked about uh, what the two of you were talking about people who are, you know, salt of the earth, like I've engaged with this salt of the earth character, he was he was saying. And it got me thinking, Jim, um, we are supposed to be the salt of the earth, but I'm not sure that when we use that turn of phrase in the culture today, that it means what it meant when Jesus said it. In fact, that sometimes means just the opposite, doesn't it? When Jesus mm-hmm. said, you're the salt of the earth, first of all, salt was enormously valuable. The word salary comes from the word salt. The Romans often paid their soldiers in salt. Salt could be more valuable than gold. It was difficult to procure. They used it to season food, as you'd expect. They also used it to purify wounds and food. They used it to preserve food in the day. It was enormously valuable. So it's a great compliment. Whereas today, when someone's the salt of the earth, we think of them as being really down to earth or really kind of a commonplace sort of a person, kind of the opposite of what Jesus meant. But the basic idea behind his metaphor, as he says this, the salt is no good unless it's out of the salt shaker. It's got to be where it can make a difference. Otherwise, it's just white powder sitting on your table at home. And so if I'm not out of the shaker and if I'm not purified, if I'm not pure sodium chloride, I'm not doing what I was made to do. So there's an incarnational impulse that's at the heart of Jesus' call for us. Whether you're the salt of the earth or the light of the world, you've got to get where you're needed or you're not doing what you're called to do. Mm. Oh, that's so good. I like. I, I, I so appreciate that. Um, you turned me on to a piece by Ross Douthit that is uh, published in the New York Times a couple of days ago. It's an opinion piece, and I first read the headline um, with my dyslexia fully informed. Um, it's actually entitled How Roe Warped the Republic. I thought it was How Roe Wrapped the, Dep- the Republic, so I'm so glad to know that the word is warped, not wrapped. Yeah, I think he could have gone wrapped, depending on what you mean by that. (laughs) If you're thinking in popular culture, maybe not so much. That gives you a whole picture of the founding fathers that may not be true to history, you know. But uh, yeah, the argument that he's making here, and now that's terrific. I read his work with great gratitude. Don't always agree, of course. That would never be the case with anybody. But uh, so grateful for the point he makes here, which is that when Roe was decided in 1973, it created an entire way of doing politics in America that has poisoned our discourse ever since. The founding fathers were what we call federalists, and by that we mean that they intended, these are my words, but they intended to devolve power so that those making the decisions live where the decisions will have their greatest impact. 
meaning they didn't want the federal government making decisions it didn't have to make and only wanted it to make decisions that affected the entire country. They wanted states making decisions affecting states. They wanted local municipalities and and, um, uh, people like mayors making decisions that affected local areas. And so they really wanted you to make decisions on a level that impacted the place where you made the decision. Well, when Roe v. Wade was decided, now I'm quoting from his article, instead of being fought over in the institutions that are designed to channel mass opinion and activist mobilization into stable settlements, whether state legislatures or the Congress. Abortion would be bound to the all-or-nothing outcomes of presidential elections and Supreme Court nomination fights. I think that's not only brilliant, I think he's right. And from 73 to today, now we're at a red versus blue, abortion versus uh, pro-abortion versus pro-life, sort of a division in this country where we're now seeing everything through that prism in a way that has deepened divisions on a level we have not seen since the Civil War. So let me reread the quote again. Again, this is um, Ross Douthat in the New York Times in an opinion piece. Jim Dennison and I are, are talking about the, um, the impact of the conversation nationally about Roe v. Wade. Um, and really where Ro- Ross comes down is this sentence. Instead of being fought, fought over in the institutions that are designed to channel mass opinion and activist mobilization into stable settlements— which would be at the legislative level, whether state legislatures or the Congress, abortion would be bound to the all or nothing outcomes of presidential elections and then subsequently out of those Supreme Court nomination fights. So um, what Ross is arguing, Jim, uh, as I understand it, is this is best um, discussed and decided at the localist of levels Because otherwise, we just end up in a uh, one-issue election cycle every two and four years, like every time. And that's where we are, precisely where we are. And so if Roe does fall, if the uh, leaked memo does become the position of this court and it moves back to the states, you're actually moving it in the direction that would have been how the fathers would have intended this sort of conversation to be having. Now, I can't imagine, and I think there's been a lot of argument about this, that the founders ever intended to understand abortion as we understand it today. But that's why abortion isn't in the Constitution. That's why the Roe v. Wade decision 1973 discovered a right to abortion that categorically does not exist in the Constitution, because it was never intended to be seen as a federal issue. It ought to be seen as a state and a local issue, and that's what the overturning would do. It wouldn't make abortion illegal by any means. It would return it to the lower legislative kind of position, which is where it always should have been. The courts are here to interpret the law, not to make the law. And that's the difference. And that's what Ross, I think, is pointing to here. And I think it's an argument we need to consider. Yeah, and I think that we get our rational minds and our rationalizations often trump our theological convictions when it comes to this conversation. And I think we have to admit that. And I think that that is um, a conversation that needs to be had, you know, at dinner tables and, uh, and at coffee tables and over, you know, lunch counters. Like I think we have to talk about the reality that, you know, some 60% of Americans say they personally know someone who has had an abortion. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we say, we there's this range upon which we're not sure how many restrictions there should be, although we're morally opposed to it. And so this conversation um, between the morality of something and the legality of something, um, I think, is the critical one for Christians to be trained to have. 
Absolutely true. For instance, I believe that adultery is wrong, but it's not illegal. It would be a challenge to make it illegal, wouldn't it? We tried with prohibition relative to alcohol abuse, and we saw how that went. There are really four positions here. There's the idea that abortion should never be possible. There's the idea of abortion possible if the mother's life is in danger. There's extreme case abortion, which can be fetal deformity incompatible with life, can be rape and incest. And then there's abortion for any reason. And so when, says, when someone says they're pro-choice, which choice are they for? When someone says we're pro-life, which life are we for? And are we pro-birth or are we pro-life? Are we for the entirety of life, what's being called the whole life movement these days? It's a complex argument. And at the end of the day, what Christians want to be doing, whatever the legalities of this is, we want to be helping women to make redemptive choices. If they're considering abortion for financial reasons, we can do something about that. If they're considering abortion because they can't imagine raising a child, we can help them with that, and we can encourage adoption, and we can be whole life in their lives. We can help with the reasons for which women often say they're considering abortion, and in that way, at the end of the day, we're about the child and about life and the mother, and we're advocating for what Jesus advocated for, which is the abundant life he came for all of us to experience. Jim, as always, just excellent. I'm going to encourage folks to go to denisonforum.org. The piece entitled, What Does the Bible Say About Abortion?, which we've actually already talked about here on the program, but it's one I want to keep pointing you to, is just one among the resources there that you'll find um, in this conversation. So again, denisonforum.org. Jim, as always, thank you so much. Carmen, always my privilege. Thanks for the conversation. Absolutely. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. So I wanted to take a minute um, here and bring you up to date on um, an, uh, an unfolding story in the West Bank. Um, so Shireen Abu Akwell uh, was a American Palestinian dual citizen. Dual citizen. Um, she has been a reporter for Al Jazeera for a long time. She was actually, I mean, she's wearing her uh, press vest um, and she was covering uh, an Israeli special forces operation um, in the West Bank when she was shot and killed. The The graphic footage um, related to it is now you know, being widely distributed on all kinds of media outlets um, and the testimonies, the, you know, the, the eyewitness testimonies um, are indicating overwhelmingly that the Israelis are responsible. And so let me just tell you, um, this is going to result in um, not only, and, you know, obviously investigations, um, but it may well result in, uh, in violence. And so it's just one of those things where I just feel like because it's unfolding right now, it's something that we ought to surface and talk about and recognize and pray over um, and have, um, you know, be mindful of. Um, So uh, I also wanted to comment here on the CDC's release of an analysis of firearm deaths here in the United States during the height of the COVID lockdowns. Um, in 2020. The numbers are very staggering. Um, You're probably going to see them uh, across the news today as well. 
firearm deaths um, were up 35 percent year over year, 2019 to 2020. Uh, firearm homicide rate increased 35 um, percent and the firearm suicide rate remained high as well. 39 percent largest increase in firearm homicides was among um, black Americans. Largest increase in firearm suicides was among Indian and Alaskan Native peoples. Um, so we're talking about a, a nearly 40 percent increase in black and brown deaths by uh, by firearms in the United States. And that's incredible, incredible. Um, in 2020, counties with the highest poverty level had had firearm homicide rates 4.5 times as high as firearm suicide rates. Um, it just it, it, it's poverty, um, race and the challenges of uh, the pandemic seem to have all combined into um, some statistics that are just awful, just awful. Um, 79% of all homicides in the United States uh, in 2020 were gun-related, and 53% of all suicides involved firearms. It's a conversation we have to have. I'm not saying that I know all the answers to all the questions. I'm saying that we have to be having an honest conversation. Um, how do those numbers influence how we think about guns and their accessibility and their use in the United States? And how might churches engage with people who are at highest risk of gun violence, um, which which in this in this piece um, says, you know, those are black and brown boys. So how might churches engage with those at highest risk of gun violence? What are we doing for black and brown boys in our neighborhoods and around our churches? We got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.